This morning, we're going to look at this final group of the four apostles. Remember, the disciples are always listed in groups of four, with Peter, Andrew, James, and John as first, and then Matthew, Nathaniel, Philip, and Thomas as second. And then these, this group is the fourth group, and they seem to be, uh, by all accounts, uh, less uh, directly involved with Jesus. You know, Peter, James, and John were extremely close and were there at the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration and, and in the garden and some other places like that. But yet, nonetheless, these are still the apostles, these ones that God called and gave to Jesus and that had this great inheritance in heaven and uh, were at the foundation of the church. But is it interesting <laughs> that we have these four that we, other than Judas Iscariot, which we'll talk about next week, we have these other three that we know so very little about. In fact, most of us, if we were honest, you probably couldn't even name them. <laughs> Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. This is where we see them. Basically, it's almost all we see of them, but maybe of scant exception later on we'll talk about. But he's listing the 12, Luke the physician is, and he talks about it in the sixth chapter, and then he lists them. We'll just begin with the 12th verse. In those days, he went to the mountain to pray all night, and he continued to prayer in God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose them 12. Now, again, back weeks ago, we started this process. We said there were really two callings of these disciples. The first was really a faith in Jesus to follow him. But then there was a second calling, and Luke records it here, where these 12 were particularly called out to really, really follow him, leave everything behind, And for 18 months or so, he invests his entire life in them, and they invest their lives in Jesus. And so this is that second calling when they are called to apostleship. And listen to what the Luke, Luke, the gospel writer, says. And when they came, he called his disciples, and from them, there were more than these 12, but from all those who were following him, he chose these 12, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother James and John. That's the first four, and Peter's always listed in the first. Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and then that's the second four. And now the third group, James the Less, or the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So if we focus on those first three As I said, we'll leave Judas for next week. We see that we have James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less. We see that we have Simon, who was a zealot. And we see we have Judas, the son of James. Father, bless the reading and the speaking of your word to our hearts on this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Of the four Gospels, two of them are written by disciples. Two of them are written by individuals who are very close to the disciples. And one of the most wonderful and unique things about these Gospels is that they never attempt to make these disciples look like heroes. You would think that if two disciples are writing the Gospels and two very close friends of the disciples are writing the other two Gospels, that they would... I mean, come on, these are, the, these are Jesus' 12. These are the 12, right? 
These are, these are the ones he chose. These are the ones in the upper room. These are the ones who took the gospel to the world. These are the ones who are eventually going to be martyred for their faith. I mean, wouldn't you want to make them heroes? And actually, dear ones, the opposite is just true. For the most part, in the gospels, the disciples do not come out looking all that great. Most of the time, when the disciples speak, it's a mistake. <laughs> They're saying something they shouldn't say. Calling, wanting to call down fire from heaven and destroy the enemies, or wanting to keep the little children away from Jesus, or not sure if the Greeks could come and see Jesus, or wondering why Jesus was delayed and not going to Lazarus, or telling Jesus, you're not going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you, or arguing constantly, who's going to be the greatest? I mean, it's a wonderful thing because the gospel writers understood that this is a story about Jesus. This is a story about the gospel. This is not a story about men. It's not trying to elevate these men to some great status. Just the opposite. It's a story about Christ and who he is and what he offers and and, and how we are all very much like those disciples. We bring nothing to the table. I mean, it's like, and, and so in a sense, if you'll allow me to, to sort of use this, I think, good logic, the fact that we don't hear much about these three isn't a bad thing. <laughs> it probably means they were listening, absorbing, and not doing anything stupid. Because <laughs> most of the time when the disciples are mentioned, they've done something they probably shouldn't do. Even Peter, when he gets out and walks on the water, it's not long, is it, until he begins to sink. And so when you look at these other three, and we know very little about them, it doesn't mean that they were insignificant, that they had nothing to offer, that we wouldn't even, it doesn't even matter that they were there. What it probably means is they were truly listening and absorbing, truly in love with Jesus, truly hanging on every one of his words. And I love the fact that we can see that among these 12, these three were Almost nothing. I mean, nearly nothing is mentioned of them. And yet they were incredibly important to the kingdom, to the foundation of the church. And we live in a culture that's so caught up in celebrity. I mean, always been caught up in celebrity in, in, in North American culture. But my goodness, in the last decades with motion pictures and then television and now social media. It's all about how many people you know, how many people follow you, how, many, how well-known you are. This con- and so we like celebrity preachers and celebrity mu- Christian musicians and celebrity. And the reality of it is here, here are, here are the, among the 12 original disciples and these three, we know 2,000 years later, nearly nothing about. The New Testament records almost nothing. In fact, in this particular account, James the less, we don't hear anything about it. How would you like to be called the less? How would you like that to be your nickname? It could mean two things, by the way. The less could mean that he was literally small in stature. Little James, you know? You had James, the brother of John. They were sons of thunder. He was probably big James. This is probably little James. It's just probably that simple. Or it could mean age. John, James, he could have been James the elder, was James the, the brother of John, and James the younger was this one, James Alphys. But nonetheless, shouldn't be lost on us that one of the 12 disciples was either little in stature or younger in age and quiet, but still a very important part of 
of the family, a very important part of the, the disciples. I mean, going to be in heaven, going to be one of the 12. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story, but it's not about him. And if you don't, if you don't understand anything else from this sermon today, and the way I'm preaching, that's quite possible. If you don't understand anything else in the sermon today, you can understand that, hey, it's not about you. It's about Christ. And you'll find your joy when you quit trying to find it and how people make much of you, and you realize because of what Jesus has done, because of what we just celebrated in this Lord's Supper, you now have the awesome privilege of making much of God for all eternity. And that's where your true joy is. People say, I don't understand what you mean, how my true joy is making much of somebody else, making much of God. Isn't true joy when people make much of me? Oh, oh, my dear friend, you could not be any more wrong. Desiring to be made much of is a black hole. It's never fed, never fed. Desiring to have people make over me and think much of me, and it's, you're, you're never satisfied in that. Real joy comes when you forget, literally forget yourself, and you lose yourself in the joy and the glory of God. And I realize it's difficult sometimes, this side of heaven, to fully understand what that looks like in, in, in some ways. Some of you perhaps didn't have an earthly father that was someone that was a, a great dad. Let's just be honest. That's, that's a possibility. It always is. Perhaps you had a grandfather or someone else. I, I was fortunate enough to have a, a great earthly dad. And he was a busy man, and he was in ministry. He was a pastor, and uh, he made a lot of visits and went to a lot of hospitals and had a lot of deacons meetings and married a lot of people and buried a lot of people. And there were many times that uh, growing up, I really felt like in some ways, sometimes, um, you know, the family, we, we came, in some ways, I felt like we at times came after the ministry. I know he struggled with that, but ministry is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But there were times when my father, who was often so burdened by, by people and, and their problems and their sorrows, and he was such a, a compassionate man who really bore the sorrows of other people and loved them very much. And, but there were times when he would sort of break away from all of that and he would have fun. And there were times when I remember sometimes on... In the evenings, every now and then, when he didn't have to go to a deacon's meeting or he didn't have to go do marriage counseling or he didn't have to go visit someone in the hospital or he didn't have to go uh, do a wedding, or he wasn't on the road coming back from a funeral or a revival, there were times, perhaps some evenings, when he would say to my mother after we ate, let's get out the games and start to play. And it was like amazing. It was like the one thing I wanted to do was my sisters and I would sit around him play board games with my mom and my dad. And the most wonderful moment was when my dad would have a great time and he would begin to laugh, you know, sort of a belly laugh and have such fun. And, and, and we'd, he'd have a bowl of popcorn there and he would be eating. He'd know how to make the popcorn. Now, the point in all of this is, as a child, my greatest memories were not when my dad made much of me, but when I was enjoying my dad's joy. When my dad was laughing and happy, I was never more happy. Now, that's a tiny, minuscule glimpse of what we mean when we say your greatest joy is enjoying the glory of God. 
Because let me tell you something. In those few moments, those fleeting human moments, when my dad was able to put away all the concerns of pastoring, all the financial concerns of trying to take care of a family on a preacher's salary, all the other issues he had, for those few moments, he's able just to enjoy life and laugh. I wanted to be around that. But here's the reality. God has no worries. He has no concerns. He's completely content in himself. He is totally joyful in himself. And he invites us to come and enjoy his joy. And church, if we can just understand, it is not about us being made much of, what people think of us, how they treat me. What they, it is about God. And I look at these, these disciples and they, it's a glorious thing to have three disciples that we don't have to know anything about because it's not about them. It's about Christ. And it's about what he can provide. And it's about what he does for us. So we have James the less. James the young or the small as opposed to James the large or the old, but we have, we have James the less. And then we also have another one that we talked about, Simon the Zealot. Now, you may or may not know, but a zealot was, if you were a Roman, you might consider a zealot a terrorist. A zealot was one whose purpose and passion in life, politically, was to overthrow the Roman occupiers. Now, most Jews wanted to overthrow the Roman occupiers, but the zealots were ready to take it to another level. They were ready to take a dagger and murder Roman soldiers, murder collaborators. They were, they were the ones who were going to take it to the next level. They were dangerous. And Simon was a zealot. Now, Matthew was also a disciple, and Matthew was a collaborator. <laughs> you can imagine. I can imagine the first few nights that they're on the road together, Matthew's taking a hard, long look at Simon the Zealot because Simon the Zealot kills people like Matthew. And that's not just sort of off the cuff. I mean, literally, Simon the Zealot killed people like Matthew. And here you've got Matthew who's got no Roman soldiers around him. He's unprotected. They're out in the wilderness with Jesus. Why not? I mean, so you've got these two very different individuals but it's Christ who brings them together. There's another sermon there someday. But Simon the Zealot was one who was passionate about the Messiah. He, he as his co-zealots would have believed, that when the Messiah comes, the first thing he would do would be set up a kingdom like David and throw out the Romans and set up the, 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 the Jewish kingdom once again. That was what he'd given his life for. You can imagine, as it began to unfold, Simon began to see a different kingdom than that one. And the very fact that we don't hear Simon arguing with Jesus politically, we don't hear Simon arguing about wanting to take over uh, and kick out the Romans, and it's not mentioned, is indicative that as Simon was with Jesus, his heart began to change, and he began to see the world differently. Sometimes he was called Simon the Canaanite or Simon the Zealot. But we do know that in time he became one who understood the new kingdom was not about what he thought it was. And then the last one here. And on this one we see Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas, Judas Thaddeus. And again, we know very little about him. 
although we do have one brief encounter with him, when the Lord is at the Last Supper and he's saying that someone will betray him, and there he begins to talk about that. It is this Judas who speaks up. and Jesus says that I'm, I'll reveal myself to you, but not yet to the rest of the world. And Judas, this Judas questions that and says, why is that? It's almost as if this Judas is saying, why would you reveal such an amazing truth to people like us and not the rest of the world? There's this humility we see in Judas. And I think in these three, what stands out is the humility, the fact that they don't demand the limelight. They don't demand to be seen. They're not speaking a lot. They're listening. They're absorbing. And the one time he does speak is to say, why would we be so privileged to have this truth ahead of everybody else. Dear friends, there's great joy and satisfaction in losing your desire to be made much of and known in the reality that I am in the presence of Christ, and there's, that's enough. That's all that I could actually ever want or ever need. And it's a wonderful thing to realize that in the family of God, we don't all have to be Peter or James or John. We don't all have to be at the forefront. We don't all have to be quick to speak and quick to act, that there's a wonderful place in the family of God and in his church for those who are quiet, who observe, who, who are supportive, who learn, and maybe are not out in the front and don't feel comfortable doing that. It was the disciples are just looking at this that tells us one thing. Jesus did not go get people who were all alike. This is not a homogeneous group. They are very different in their personalities and their worldviews and their political views, but he brings them all together. And that's how it works in a church. And I do believe when churches begin to argue and quarrel and fuss and fight, that's just the human nature. We all have different views. We all have different opinions. We all have different ideas. And when that begins to happen, it's because the church is no longer looking simply to Jesus, but they're looking at themselves. Interestingly enough, we're talking about these three rather anonymous disciples that basically, other than Judas making that one statement, we really know nothing about other than their names. By the way, James the Less could have been the cousin of Jesus. There's some indication that perhaps, and I won't get into it, we don't know for sure, but his mother could have been Mary, John the Baptist's mother. It's possible he was Jesus' cousin. It's also not beyond possibility that he was Jesus' brother. We don't know. But even more unusual, isn't it, that if he were the cousin of Jesus or even Jesus' little brother, that he didn't force himself and use those relationships to make much of himself. But we look at these three, and then I want to go back just one chapter to a very familiar passage of Scripture that I think relates to these three, and that's chapter 5 of Luke and verse 17. So you have these three rather anonymous disciples who, again, I don't want you to think they're anonymous because they weren't doing anything. They were probably, in some ways, as I said, maybe better than the others because they weren't getting in trouble. That's why nothing was written about them. And maybe James, perhaps, was a relation to Jesus, and he didn't use that to try to promote himself. And, and Simon the Zealot could have caused all kinds of problems and engaged Jesus in all kinds of discussions of politics, but he didn't. He let that alone because he realized early on that things were different, and this was not the political thing. And he didn't try to attract, attack Matthew. And then Judas, this Judas, 
The one thing he does ask is, why, why are we so fortunate to have this truth? So it's a wonderful group of three. But just one chapter before, Luke, the gospel writer, records this story in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing a man who was paralyzed, and he was on a bed, and they were seeking to bring him to Jesus and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, and they let him down with his bed to the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, my pastor at Lenexa, when he talked about this text, I'd never really thought about this before, Dan. I love it. It's great insight. Here's this man who's been paralyzed, right? His life. These four guys are bringing him to see Jesus. Couldn't get in through the crowd, but that wasn't going to stop. I mean, they're going to, so this guy's getting lifted up. He realizes, man, these people are really committed to getting me in front of Jesus. Trying to lift up a paralyzed man up on the roof had to be very difficult. And then lowering all of that. And what's Jesus do? He says, I got good news for you. Your sins are forgiven. To which the man probably thought, well, that is good news. But in case you haven't noticed, I got a more pressing issue. I can't walk. The reality is you don't have a more pressing issue. The most pressing issue, the only real issue you have is you're a sinner and you're on your way to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. That pales in comparison to not being able to walk physically. Because even though he healed him of that, at some point that guy got sick and died of something else. And indeed, we do need to pray for physical healing. The book of James tells us to pray for those who are sick among us. And if it pleases God for his good pleasure and his glory, he may and can heal us physically. But that is absolutely insignificant compared to the fact that he has already promised 100% to heal us spiritually and give us eternal life and remove from us the curse of death. That's our real need. Many times when Jesus heals people, he forgives their sins first. And probably from their standpoint, thank you, that's a nice thing, but I would like to walk. <laughs> I understand that. But the reality is, and, and we, we get sick, and we have a loved one who's sick, and we think, man, we'd love to have you. Can't you heal him? And if, if God chooses not to heal him on this side of, of, of heaven, it, but God will, if, he, if anyone repents of their sin and turned to him, God will absolutely forgive their sins and give them eternal healing, which is eternally more significant than physical healing. People say, well, does God still heal today? Absolutely. Every sinner who turns to him is healed eternally. Heaven is filled with countless millions of people for all eternity who've been healed from a disease they couldn't cure. Anyway. But here's what I want to say as we wrap this up today. Seeing the faith of those men, Jesus said to this one, your sins are forgiven. Later on, take up your bed and walk. He healed him physically too. But seeing the faith, who? Who are these men? Where do they come from? What are their names? What are their backgrounds? How do they know each other? When did they decide to do this? Can't we just get a hint? 
I mean, these are four men who so impressed the creator of the universe, God eternal. When he saw their faith, he was so impressed by that that he healed their friend. Shouldn't we at least know who they are? No. It doesn't matter who they are. What matters here, here was a sinner who was saved. Here was one who was lost and is found. Here's one who's there for eternity. And what matters is who cares what these four men's names were. They were able to look into the face of of God in Jesus and know that when he looked at them, he he was satisfied with their work. What more notoriety do you need than that? And dear ones, when you begin to look around the church and say, well, nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows what I'm doing. I need to be made much of. You think of these four. It is not about you. And when you make it about you, you lose your joy. You lose your happiness. And if anything, these three disciples show us it doesn't have to be about us. It's all about Jesus. These four who brought this friend, it's not about them. It's about Jesus. And real joy in your life comes when you desire more than anything else, not to have your dad make much of you, but to be able to enjoy your dad when he's having a belly laugh and enjoying himself. That's really what you want. My own sons, I was not a perfect dad by any means. And you've watched me on Facebook or podcast. You know, there are times I've, I've ignored my children far more than I should have because of ministry and traveling. I realize that. And there were times I've spent probably more time discipling other young men even than my own sons, and I regret that. But the one thing I did, I think learning from my dad, that I'm comfortable with in raising my boys is we created an environment where we, we love Jesus and we love to have fun. And our home was a fun place. And when I traveled with them on the road, we, we made every, every attempt to work in time to have fun, <laughs> to do fun things all of their life. And some of them would travel with me long distances for preaching schedules or for doing other conferences, but we'd always find time on the road to go do things that were fun or to listen to music and tapes that were fun and humorous and, and tell a lot of jokes. And the boys are now in their mid-30s. And, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll ask me if I've seen something that's humorous that we have the same similar humor about. And I'll say, yeah, I've seen it. And they say, we want to watch it again when we come over. And I'll say, well, dudes, we've, we've watched this all of our whole life. We know what it is. They say, yeah, but we, and they're in their 30s. They say, yeah, but we love to hear you laugh. You know, sometimes when you get older, you don't laugh as much. You don't feel as good. (laughs) Your life begins to look a little different. And uh, yeah, so one of my sons asked me the other day, he said, are you all right? You're not not laughing as much. He noticed that because he finds joy still when his dad laughs. And I really want us to understand that fallen and as broken as we are, God is not broken, and he is totally joyful in himself. And our greatest joy is just like setting up on your dad's lap, and when he's just laughing and having a great time, that's what it means to go before God and enjoy his glory. Not to be made much of, but to make much of him. That's true joy. That's joy that never goes away. That's joy that nothing can compare to. So, dear ones, this morning you say, I don't understand that. Well, spend more time in his word. 
Spend more time meditating on what he's done for you. Spend more. Satan wants to crowd your mind out and not let you remember that, as I said earlier today, every breath you take is a gift of God. Every step you take is a gift of God. That your home is already made in heaven. That he's already prepared a place for you. That he went and received a brutal death and the wrath of God so that you might be free. So that you have an eternal home. And no matter what happens to you, that can never be taken away from you. And when you close your eyes in death, you'll open your eyes. You'll be with the Lord in paradise forever. We're going to have joy unspeakable. We're going to rule and reign with him for all eternity. Nothing's going to change that. That's your inheritance. And when we focus on those things and the hope of future glory, the fact that I'm loved beyond anything I could ever ask or imagine, when you held that cup and you held that bread, it doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. The one who created the world loved you enough to die for you. And your joy is found in that. And if we can just realize that it's not about who we are and how people think of us and are we being made much of, but it's about Christ. And you get there when you spend more time in his word. You spend more time meditating and thinking on the good things he's done for you. You spend more time with other believers. You spend more time listening to music that edifies you and edifies the Lord. Yes, you spend more time with him. The more you spend time with him, the more you grow to love him and the more you find your joy in him. But the only thing you do is wander into church a couple of times a month. No, you're not going to understand the joy of seeking God's glory. It's going to seem odd and strange to you. You're going to try to find your joy in the things of this earth that are temporary, that are fog, that are vapor, and they'll be gone tomorrow. I'm rambling, but I'm a pastor, and I can do that. One of the dear young children told me today, are you going to talk today? And I said, yes. He said, well, don't talk as long as you usually do. So I think his dad put him up to it. But the joy of life is not found in these things. I went to an auction Thursday night. I love to go to auctions. And opened up this case. It was a brand-new VHS camcorder, great big thing with the case and the cords and all the books. Everything kept neatly. This person was a type A person. They kept everything. This thing was from the late 1980s, easily. I stood there with my iPhone and took a video of it. <laughs> and I, I remember in the late 1980s, getting out of seminary, getting ready to have our first baby, I remember wanting so desperately a camcorder. And there's no way I could afford it. I think it was like 1000 bucks back then. That might as well have been 10000 bucks to me. And I thought, man, if I could only have one of those. I remember going and looking at them at Circuit City, which is no longer here anymore. And I remember looking at them and trying to figure out some way to get them, and there just wasn't any way I was ever going to get one. And here was one at the auction, and I'm not making this up. They couldn't give it away. Got down to a dollar. Nobody, what are you going to do with it? Nobody even wanted it. Something that was so valuable 20, 25 years ago was worthless today. The thing you seek to find your joy in in this earth is worthless compared to all eternity. Does that make sense? Find your joy in him, not the things of this world, not what people make of you, but in him and him alone. And look at these three disciples. And if James was the cousin, perhaps the little brother of Jesus, he never tried to use that. The zealot, Simon, he never tried to get his political views across. He submitted quickly to Jesus. Judas, he realized we're so unworthy to have this truth before the rest of the world. There's joy when you live 